0: Hey everyone, welcome back to the Modern Medusa podcast. This is your host, Dominique DeFalco, and this is episode seven. I am super excited, like I say, for this guest. I say that every single episode, but I'm always excited for our guests. Um, and I was going to make a joke about how the audio quality should be pretty good for this one because it's another podcaster. But last time I had a podcaster on, we had to record it twice because I messed up the audio. So not going to jinx it. So like I guess I want to thank everyone for the positive feedback we had on podcast last week with Ashley Howdy. It was definitely one of our longer episodes, but I think it was really important to include all of that information. So thank you for all the positive words. Before we get started, I of course want to give a huge thank you to Joe Phelan with Port City Pet for helping us get this podcast up and running and encourage everyone to give him a follow on Facebook and Instagram. And then also if you're not following me already, it's Defalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram, or you can follow the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. So today I'm very excited for our guest. Um, our guest today is a woman who I have never officially met, even though, you know, virtually, but I came across her podcast on Twitter, I would say about a year ago, and it was a really interesting podcast It is called just the zoo of us podcast. And it is a head to head comparison podcast on what animal is better with her husband, which is just hilarious. So I want to introduce Ellen Weatherford, just the zoo of us podcast. Hey, Ellen. Hey,
1: Dominique. I'm really excited to be joining today. I think this is a really cool idea for a podcast. I love reptiles and I'm just really excited to get to talk to, um, other reptile enthusiasts. This is really exciting. Yeah.
0: I'm really excited too. And it's, um, I think this is going to be a fun episode because you are not a a herp keeper or someone who works with reptiles every day, but we've both come with some stories of female herpetologists to introduce to each other. So
1: yeah. I I'm not a reptile keeper. I have had a reptile in the past. Wait, I had, let me guess. Let
0: me guess. Okay. A leopard gecko. Yes. I had two yeah. leopard geckos. <laughs> <laughs> that's always like, Oh, I had a, an animal like, it's either a leopard gecko or a bearded dragon. Right. Yes. And you seem like a leopard gecko lady. I did. A compliment. Have-
1: <laughs> I had two leopard geckos. Their names were Ramses and Nefertari. Oh, that's so dirty. And- I was real. They were very sweet and I loved them very much. Um, Mm -hmm. Had them a long time ago, but that was my little reptile uh, keeping experience.
0: Yeah. I think, (laughs) honestly,
1: I think every kid should have a leopard gecko. It's a great, like it, it teach, I think it teaches you a lot about like appreciating the animal while being respectful of its boundaries, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's
0: also so much responsibility. (laughs) Oh yeah. Even... I even I just had one leopard gecko when I was younger and I remember when it pooped I was like oh my god and my mom's (laughs) like you wanted this and I was like I know and now I've got like 15 animals that (laughs) all the time (laughs) it's like the
1: the the twitter meme that's like me reaping it's like this is awesome I love this and then when it's like me sewing it's like (laughs) or maybe it's the other way around is it sewing and I, I have no idea. <laughs> it's like, oh, this
0: sucks. What the fuck oh, yeah, because you're like sowing the field and then you actually have to do the work. Yeah. Oh, uh, I think that brings up an an important message that I want to get out here in the beginning. If you're not following just the zoo of us on Twitter, you need to because your <laughs> memes are so high quality. <laughs> it's mostly memes that I post it on there. It <laughs> is very much mostly memes and I appreciate it because I throw them on my Instagram story all the time. And I do I do tag you, so don't worry. Oh, yeah. <laughs> awesome. So like I said, thank you so much for joining. I think it's really fun to have people who aren't necessarily as ingrained in the uh, animal community in the sense of keeping, but still someone who's obviously very passionate and like loves animals a lot. So give me a little bit of background of of who you are, what got you into animals and, and how did you get where you are now?
1: Yeah, of course. So uh, I'm from Florida. Uh, I'm from North, (laughs) I'm from North Florida, which I know is like the reptile, like hotspot of America. (laughs) We have so many beautiful reptiles. In fact, I will say this. My first memory in my whole brain is of, I was, I would have probably only been two or three years old. And I found on the windowsill of the house that we lived in, and it was on the inside of the house, which is weird, but there was a green anole Mm -hmm. Um, on the inside of our window. And I know that I was very little because in my memory, it's huge. It was like, (laughs) in my memory, it's like the size of my entire arm.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Of course.
1: And I remember finding this lizard and I think that I remember it because that's when my mom pointed it out to me and was like, that's a lizard. So like, that was me learning what a lizard was. Mm-hmm. And that's like the first memory in my brain, um, is of finding a lizard on our windowsill. Uh, so, you know, growing up in Florida, we're constantly surrounded by reptiles and amphibians and just like, it's, it's very much a breeding ground, I think for passion and herpetology. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I mean, we got gators, we got tortoises. I, we I, got wish, turtles. I, lived,
0: I <laughs> wish I lived near alligators. I, my, um, I live in Ohio. Well, it's like I live on the Ohio Kentucky border. So I mm-hmm. live partially in Ohio, partially in Kentucky. Um, and Ohio has really weird laws where like, you can't have certain animals, but Indiana, which is also like 20 minutes away is like, screw it. Like have what you want. (laughs) And my friend literally texted me this morning and she was like, Hey, I'm getting an alligator. Do you want to come see it? And I'm like, heck yeah. (laughs) Because um, We both work with a a reptile rescue that had an intake situation from a hoarding case. And so she's getting one for her facility. And I was like, "Yep, I'll be there after this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We, so I was also going to mention that for for a while there, I did
1: work at, I'm just going to say a pet store, (laughs) a a big, Mm -hmm. a big name chain pet store. Um, and one of our things is that thankfully we had a wonderful manager. Um, the manager of our store had a degree in marine biology. Wow. Um, yeah, he was very overqualified
0: to be working at that pet store. I feel like that (laughs) happens with a lot of people who get these awesome animal degrees and then they're Mm -hmm. like, Oh, no one's paying me any money to do anything with it. Right. So
1: he was the store manager and thankfully he kept the energy. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he was very cool and very like mindful about taking good care of the animals in the store. Um, and one time these dudes came in and were looking at the fish tanks and they were looking at the very, very big fish tanks. Mm -hmm. And so I was working there. And so I was like, Hey, is there anything I can help you out with? And they were like, yeah, what kind of tank do you think we should get for an alligator? And I was like, (laughs) none of those (laughs) actually like not, not a single one. They were like, what about this really, really big one? I was like, have you ever seen a an alligator
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's that's so funny because it's you can tell different levels of people like i my friend who is getting an alligator she's been planning on getting an alligator for a really long time she's just been waiting for one to come into the rescue um I think if anyone is going into a uh unnamed big box pet store and looking at a glass fish shank and saying which one's good for an alligator
1: yeah they're not ready
0: for an alligator
1: <laughs> yeah so that's why I was like I was like no 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 and but they were and then they tried to be like okay so let's say it's for a turtle then yeah then cool. which one mm-hmm. and I, I was like uh-uh no <laughs> so- yeah your turtle gonna be 12 feet long <laughs> no it was not good um but you know like growing up in Florida, like I I was like, if you want to see an alligator that bad, literally just walk outside, like Mm -hmm. walk outside and like go into literally any body of water. (laughs) I'm sure you will find a gator out there. It's, they are everywhere. We also have like a big invasive species problem too, where Mm -hmm. like, everything that lives here pretty much is invasive at this point. You know, we've got, um, down in South Florida. So I'm up in North Florida and the invasive pythons don't get that far up thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but we do down in South Florida, have a big invasive Python problem, um, mm-hmm. from, uh, specifically back in the nineties, um, hurricane Andrew came through and wrecked shop, you know, for, for all of South Florida and destroyed some buildings where they were like breeding, you know, mm-hmm. pythons and, and exotic reptiles and stuff like that. So when those buildings got destroyed, the animals got loose. Right. And then they got outside and they were like, Florida rules. <laughs> it's like, <perfectly, laughs> it is a good climate. Mm-hmm. it's like perfect reptile climate. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they didn't really have, there were no like large predators that were able to take them down because our snakes don't get that big. Right. So there's nothing there that can really step to them. And so the pythons in, in South Florida were like, oh yeah, this rocks. (laughs) So they just totally took over down there. Um, So, you know, kind of like awesome that it's such a great climate for reptiles, not awesome for other reasons Mm -hmm. because of the invasive species.
0: Yeah. So that's something that's really interesting. And I'm curious your thoughts. I'm going to tread carefully when we talk about this, because this is like a very hot button issue with reptile keepers. Are you familiar with US ARC? I don't think so. Okay. I didn't think you would be. <laughs> so USARC is the United States Association of Reptile Keepers, okay. and it is an organization that works to ensure that the ability to keep reptiles in captivity like stays um, around because, um, especially following the invasive issue in Florida, there has been an, a huge uptick in legislation trying to strip rights of keeping any reptiles across the U S right now, Florida is a big place that we're worried about South Carolina, New York. There's all of these, um, legislation on the table with these bans in place that, uh, talk about what you can and cannot keep, or what can't cross state lines and stuff, which could, you know, like t- tread on a lot of people who have been working really hard with these species ethically and kept them well in captivity. So mm-hmm. From someone who is outside of the reptile community, but is someone who's in Florida and in the animal community, um, what is the conversation like with the lay people, quote unquote? (laughs) Um, Are you hearing about these bans? Are you hearing about these laws that are coming up at all?
1: You know, in some of the more like wildlife centered groups that I'm Mm -hmm. in, um, Mm -hmm. we do hear about it and it is from in Florida specifically, it is kind of more almost celebratory Mm -hmm. because the idea is like we're losing a lot of our native species to a lot of invasive species that have been brought in by largely like pet trade. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think in like the wildlife communities that that are not reptile focused, I think people are more, you know, supportive of having a tighter control on what kind of Animals are brought into the state mm-hmm. with, like, you know, under the knowledge that, yeah, if it gets out, like, if it if it escapes captivity, or if heaven forbid, somebody just sets it loose, mm-hmm. um you know, then it's going to lead to a whole new problem down the road. Mm-hmm. So, like, within those sorts of like online,
0: you know, it's yeah. it is mostly online, it's the sci com community, right? On Twitter a lot, yeah,
1: yeah. So it is a little bit more celebratory of like being in control of like trying to mitigate the damage that's being done to like the natural ecosystem here mm-hmm. um especially cuz i've i've um you know m- made friends with people within like the florida S- invasive species council um though i will say i mean cats really overshadow that whole conversation in general do- <laughs> yeah
0: that's and that was something i was going to ask you so yeah.
1: Like Which- cats just completely eclipse the entire like reptile conversation for the most part. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, people will talk everywhere, about- not just Florida, everywhere. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, when, when reptile keeping does come up, it's, it's like a little bit of, you know, oh, cool. You know, maybe now we won't have so many, <sighs> you know, pythons or I, I mean, iguanas haven't been doing so much, but we have like a big, like iguanas have pretty much mm-hmm. just become like, they're just part of Florida now. Like right. it's just, there's nothing you could do about them, mm-hmm. you know, like frogs and, and all sorts of like the, the Brown and that, that, mm-hmm. you know, but they didn't, I mean, they weren't brought in on purpose. I don't think they just came in on like plants and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So that wasn't, you know, nobody set them loose or anything like that. Right. But, um, you know, I, th- I think that, yeah, people will for a second be like, oh, okay. Yeah. We, we do need to get a handle on our invasive reptile problem, but cats are a much bigger thing. So like mm-hmm. all of the energy immediately gets redirected of like, well, if we're talking about invasive species, let's talk about cats. Cause mm-hmm.
0: they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And That's- it's interesting because like cats, cats don't carry a fear factor like a big Mm -hmm. snake does right. Or like a big lizard does. So that's why it seems so much easier to target reptiles specifically um, as like, I will admit like fully that they are a problem, but they were a problem 20 years ago that banning things like across the board now does not help the Mm -hmm. issue that already exists. Like there should have been steps leading up to it. Um, Because unfortunately the legislation that that just passed, um, to my knowledge, just completely bans the keeping and breeding of 10 species by 2024. And it's like, holy shit, like that should have been, if that was going to be a problem, it's been a problem for a while. And to just do an outright ban without any like sort of um, regulations as to keeping it or, or such that doesn't really help the problem because all of a sudden you're going to have all these animals that people can't keep anymore. And they're just going to be sent to other States. <laughs> Sure. Yeah. Or people will just set them loose. Mm-hmm. Um, I, like, I hope that doesn't happen. Right. <laughs> I,
1: I I do also like hope that too. I, I will say that, like from my time working at the pet store, mm-hmm. people would call us and be like, hey, um, I have this animal. It would be literally any type of animal. Mm-hmm. Um, And they would be like, I can't keep it anymore. Where can I take it? And we'd be like, sorry, I don't know. You can call this rescue, see if they'll take it. Mm-hmm. And they'll be like, well, I think
0: I'll just turn it loose. <laughs> like, yeah.'" And- every time <laughs> it's we had um i like i said i work with a rescue couple uh last year we got a call and they're like hey there's a big lizard in my backyard and i we don't have big lizards in ohio and i just assumed like oh can you send me a picture it was a tegu and i, I was no! like oh that's <laughs> that's not supposed to be there at all and, um, <laughs> the same situation where someone you know let it go and luckily it was over the summer when it was able to survive outside and we did okay. capture it I it was the funniest phone call I received I was at work when <laughs> I get a phone call and this woman's like there's a giant lizard in my raccoon trap and I was like where do you live and she's like Springfield and I was like yeah we've been looking for that lizard like I'm on <laughs> my way <laughs> and so like, luckily it was okay but um yeah it's crazy and it's it's upsetting as someone who is passionate about animals and passionate about captive keeping to hear people so flippant with the animals. Like they don't really care. Yeah. And how did you, is that something you experienced a lot in the pet store? Because I know that there's a lot of issues with like the big box pet stores not necessarily promoting the best sorts of keeping. Um, and I know your experience was more limited with actually keeping reptiles, but we were speaking before we, you had a lot of friends who worked at the pet store that were reptile people. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So, you know, luckily we had really good management and a really good staff at the particular store that I worked at, which I Mm -hmm. think was maybe a little bit of luck, maybe a little bit of the fact that we were, um, it was very close to our city's university. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of college people that were there for the college studying biology, which it was university of North Florida, which Mm -hmm. has a great like coastal, like marine biology program. Mm -hmm. So I think that they were drawing a lot of college kids that were there studying animals, like people that were there that were going to be like passionate about it. Um, so, you know, sometimes we would get people that would be very flippant. Like you said, Uh, but in a, in the sense that like, I think they came into getting an animal with a lot of like obsession level of enthusiasm. And then very, very quickly realized that it was a lot more work and maintenance than they were Mm -hmm. expecting.
0: And they live a very long time.
1: Yes. So the ones that I saw the most of were sugar gliders People hmm. were always getting sugar gliders. Yeah, um, I don't know if there was like a trend for a little while, but like it seemed like yeah. for like for a couple of years there. Like I knew a bunch of people that just like got sugar gliders impulsively. Mm-hmm. Um, so sugar they're gliders so are
0: so cute. They're so, <laughs> cute. so small, and people are like, "Oh well, everyone has them." Like they're mm-hmm. not, and they're not expensive. I think that's like right. the big thing that's really interesting for people who maybe aren't like in exotic animal keeping is that these animals are not as expensive as you think they should be. They should be more expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the breeders would agree they'd like that, but it's like, yeah. it's not hard to get your hands on any sort of species you really want if you know the right people.
1: Yeah, um, for, for reptiles, like I think I, luckily our, our manager was very cool and very straightforward with people about like, this is the kind of care commitment that you are really, in fact, for a while, we had um, a veiled chameleon in the mm-hmm. store. Mm-hmm. And my manager was the only one that I, cause I went to a lot of different pet stores in our area and he was the only one out of all the stores I went to that kept the chameleon off of the sales floor, like Good. completely off somewhere Good. else. It was in a back, it was in the, the back room where we kept, um, like new animals that had come in before, mm-hmm. like they needed to stay back there for a certain amount of time before they went on the sales floor. So the chameleon would stay in the back in a closet in a locked room. Mm-hmm. And so we were only allowed to like interact with the, the chameleon if somebody like specifically said they were interested in buying it. Mm-hmm. Um, so if somebody would like be like, oh, do you have a chameleon? We're like, yeah, like it's, it's here and they would be like okay can i if they were like where is it can i see it then we'd be like yeah just kind of like gauge their interest be like are you really serious about this Mm -hmm. and if they were and they kind of already understood like what kind of commitment a chameleon was then we could show them the chameleon but Mm -hmm. it was cool because he really explained to us a lot about how like handling them stresses them out Mm -hmm. like you don't even when you're like doing substrate changes and and like misting them and stuff like that even then don't touch the chameleon leave it alone so like that was really cool that he did that. Um, I haven't since seen any, you know, I've been to a lot of pet stores since then. I've, I always see like chameleons out on the sales floor, which I think mm-hmm. is kind of not great for them, you know, cause kids are touching the glass and poking yeah. the thing and everything like that. Um, and they're
0: usually, you know, not kept in the right humidity or the right conditions. And, you know, if you have a really nice veiled chameleon keeping it well, it's gorgeous. But mm-hmm. most of the ones you see at pet stores are like, very dark gray and brown that indicates that they're very scared and very stressed out and probably won't last very long.
1: Yeah. So, so we got very lucky with the people that worked at the one I specifically worked at. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of times people, I think, would kind of approach owning a reptile from a sort of status symbol mm-hmm. um, perspective, you know, like, oh, you know, they wanted something. That was going to be very badass. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they wanted something badass to make them look badass, you know. Because mm-hmm. uh, are you and- saying I'm
0: a badass?
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, thank you, Ellen. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I do think I do think that you know reptile reptiles are badass. They really are. Um, and so you know to to have a relationship with them and to like, be able to keep them and they're thriving in your care. Like, I think that says a lot and that's, that's a great, um, very like mutually fulfilling relationship I think to have, Mm -hmm. but a lot of people were really only in it for like, what is this going to like, how is this, how is having this pet going to make me look, you know, like for the gram. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, people that would have like a, you know, they, they would be specifically looking for like a type of snake or uh, something like that. That was going to be very, I don't know, something that was going to make them look cooler. I think like looking mm-hmm. for arm candy, mm-hmm. uh, even when you explain to them, like, this is not the type of animal you want to be taking out a whole lot. You want to leave it alone, give it lots of space. Um, and and then the flip side of that is that one thing that was really fun for me was, helping kids not be afraid of reptiles. Mm -hmm. Um, So like bearded dragons were perfect for this. You know, if if they were like, if the kids were a little bit like they were curious, but maybe a little scared, like, mm-hmm. oh no, I don't think I want to touch a lizard. Like, well, <laughs> check so out this bearded slimy. dragon. Yeah, yeah, no. So I just get out a bearded dragon, right, and just hold it out and just let them like see that like reptiles aren't anything to worry about. It's nothing to be scared of. You can just, you know, it, it was great for like having uh, an interaction where you can kind of get on the, on the ground floor with somebody be like, Mm -hmm. let me get ahead of this, like reptile phobia and make Mm -hmm. sure that we're like fostering, um, a a healthy appreciation for reptiles like early on. So, you know, you, we kind of get got both ends of like the positive and the negative of, you know, basically like sharing your life with reptiles. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I, the only one I ever had was a leopard gecko. Um, well, the two leopard geckos, which were very sweet. They were largely decorative pets. <laughs> yeah. Not, I, I would kind of describe them to people as like largely ornamental pets. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they're mm-hmm. just, you have them there to appreciate them. And then you don't, it's not a two-way appreciation. Right? You appreciate them and that's it. That's why um, you have a
0: cat. <laughs> no?
1: Yeah. So uh,
0: and you keep my, it inside yes inside inside.
1: (laughs) even inside cat and my my husband um when he was a kid had a ball python Mm. uh that he named Dumbledore (laughs) once again so nerdy (laughs) made for each other I know I never got actually I will confess I've never seen a Harry Potter movie
0: (laughs) ever in my life all right thank you guys for listening to the podcast uh
1: (laughs) so um you know he so he had a ball python when he was younger so he had that sort of like experience with reptiles and um both of us kind of had like a little bit of experience you know just just having that um interactive experience of mm-hmm. of i guess developing an appreciation for reptiles at like the hands-on sort of level cuz mm-hmm. they're not you know I, if you've never like touched or interacted with one, I guess you can come up with all sorts of ideas about what Mm -hmm. you think that experience is like, but when you actually have a chance to like touch one, it just feels so much more real. You know, you get to feel like they're warm and they're moving and they're like, Mm -hmm. they, you could they have like a heartbeat and muscles that are like, Mm -hmm. you know, flowing. And it's just, it's really, it's very, it, it can help a lot to like connect with the animal by like having that contact with it. It's really yeah. cool.
0: I think that's one of my favorite things is when I have friends who like aren't animal people and are like, can I hold like my best friend, she doesn't love the snakes, but she like loves my geckos. <laughs> and She's like, can I see your gecko? And I'm like, yeah, absolutely. And then, um, <laughs> it's hilarious because her boyfriend came over and he is a good friend of mine too but he's never seen all the animals and he also fell in love with the gecko and now we're getting them a gecko and I'm like yeah (laughs) Yeah. bringing you in oh yeah so your husband had a ball python um but if we can talk a little bit about uh I'd love to learn about you know your relationship with your husband, like, how'd you guys meet? And then like, how did you guys decide to start a podcast about animals? And also tell us about your podcast. Cause I think <laughs> it's so, it's so fun. It's just such a unique, um, setup. Yeah, of course. Uh, I'll talk about me and Christian first. <laughs> Cause, cause yeah, we'll, Chris, we'll his name's podcast. Christian. I'm just saying your husband. <laughs>
1: Sorry. It's okay. That's how I, that's how I, uh, refer to him. Well, sometimes I call, I still call him my boyfriend sometimes because <laughs> I think it's cute. I don't know. <laughs> Cute. <laughs> um, so, so Christian and I, we actually went to the same high school. Um, we didn't know each other. Then we had mutual friends, but we didn't meet in high school. We met in college, mm-hmm. um, through mutual friends. We went to the same high school and then the same college, um, and just kind of became friends in college, uh, so Christian studied computer science. So he has his degree in computer science. Um, I was studying biology at the time Mm -hmm. I dropped out. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) I got pregnant and had a baby and that's a good reason. (laughs) So I dropped out. And, um, so, you know, Christian and I were just really good friends. You know, we played a lot of the same video games and so we would, you know, hang out and, um, spent just a lot of time together through being mutual friends. One memory I have of us together when um, we were in college. So I was a freshman in college, he would have been a junior or senior maybe um, in college. And we were with a bunch of our friends. And we went to the beach in the middle of the night as weird college kids in Jacksonville do to fly. To, it was specifically to fly kites. So we got, <laughs> which we didn't own kites. We bought kites oh on the God. way, <laughs> like we stopped at Walmart and bought kites on the way to the beach. Um, so we went to the beach. It was pitch black dark. Um, I brought my dog, who's a beagle. So I had my beagle on a leash. It was, I think maybe like six of us that were walking down the beach. It's the middle of the night. We're flying our kites. I've got my dog there and the dog like runs off. And I'm like, what is she after? And so we go and follow her to whatever she's interested in. She finds something. We turn on the light and it is a bonnet head shark. Oh, like, wow. On the sand. It's a dead bonnet bonnethead shark. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like, know losing it because that's so cool Mm -hmm. um we were not high but (laughs) (laughs) your kites were were. (laughs) but we were really excited about this shark and um christian picked it up and he was holding it and showing it Mm -hmm. to all of us and he asked me he said have you ever uh, touched a shark before i said no and he i i said i said what does it feel like he goes i'm not telling you (laughs) Well he said he said I'm not gonna tell you because I want he he said because you need to touch it yourself to see what it feels like. Because he knew that I admittedly have a big phobia of fish. I'm very afraid of fish. I'm extremely afraid of fish. Just like Um, in general? Yeah, like I don't I don't You worked at a pet store. (laughs) I did. It was it was very difficult for me. I was one <laughs> of the only people who like used gloves when bagging the fish.
0: Mm-hmm. Like
1: I would like get the whole bag full of water and then like use, yeah, like just- I had like the gloves and the net where I would have to like grab it through like <laughs> multiple layers. Cause I was yeah. so freaked out by them. Mm-hmm. But so I was like, no, I don't want to touch the shark. And he's like, well, I guess you're not going to know what it feels like then. And I was like, okay, fine. <laughs> <laughs> I did. I ended up touching it, which was really, really cool. Cause it's, it has that sort of like bristly sandpapery feeling to it, mm-hmm. which I had I literally had no idea until mm-hmm. he was, he, he got me to touch it. Um, and then, you know, so after that, we just stayed really good friends. And then eventually, you know, I had a really big crush on him. <laughs> and so eventually I just, uh, you know, asked him out enough times <laughs> until, <laughs> until he said yes
0: (laughs) (laughs) that's good wear him
1: down you know (laughs) oh yeah definitely um so but yeah we we had just we had been friends for a long time at that point so it was just a very like it I it took a lot of that like awkward you know beginning of the relationship phase out where Mm -hmm. we basically like had already just like kicked it so many times that we were like oh yeah this is just doing the same thing except we just like make out sometimes now
0: <laughs> um, so ah to live pre-covid I know.
1: <laughs> so uh we got married in 2019 mm-hmm. was that 2019 yeah it was but I should back up a little bit because we're going to talk about podcast stuff prior to that when we were dating and together um we had started to listen to a lot of the McElroy podcasts together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so I've always listened to podcasts. I started listening to podcasts when I was 11.
0: Wow. I started listening to this American life. (laughs) That's a good one. That's a good one to start with.
1: Yeah. So I got into this American life and radio lab and there were some other ones I listened to when I was like a teenager. And then, so I had already been like listening to podcasts, very familiar with it. And then I started to get him into the McElroy podcasts Mm -hmm. and we, really dove into that one, like mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of hours. Like we would take long road trips where we would just binge like adventure zone yeah. and stuff like that. Um, and then one, I guess in March of 2019, um, Griffin McElroy did a talk at FSU, which is mm-hmm. in Tallahassee, which is about four hours away from Jacksonville. It was on a Tuesday evening. And so we were like, you know what? Let's just go. mm mm-hmm. So we went after work on a Tuesday evening and drove four hours to Tallahassee. That's and, dedication. Yes. Listened to Griffin McElroy. It was a very good, very good talk about, you know, like his experiences with podcasting and just a lot of like, you know, motivational, like do what you love with people that you love with people that you care about, all that sort of thing. And in the mm-hmm. car on the way home, because the same night we turned around and drove back to Jacksonville. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. Um, You know, on the way home, we had been kind of floating this idea of like, we should meet like, wouldn't it be fun if we started a podcast together? Yeah, maybe someday. Um, But on the way home, I think we were both like, let's actually do it. Like, Mm -hmm. let's just hit, you know, let's just go for it. Um, so all the way home, we like ordered the microphones, uh, yeah. <laughs> and got ready to do it and, and brainstormed the idea that we were going to do, which, which did turn into just the zoo of us. So it is a, a podcast where we talk about animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, each of us brings one animal to the conversation and in each of our segments, we, review the animal kind of like as though you were reviewing a movie or a video Hmm. game so we take categories for the animal so effectiveness which is physical adaptations and then ingenuity which is behavioral adaptations and then aesthetics which is just how nice the animal looks and we give them ratings out of 10 in Mm -hmm. all of those categories um which and i'll hear i'll interrupt
0: really fast have you done the sunfish the sunfish
1: no we haven't talked about the the sunfish yet because
0: i think it's it's, it would be there's some drama (laughs) It just, I think like I love I I think your podcast is hilarious because you'll put like a puffin against a great white shark and like have to rate them. And it's just awesome. Yeah. But I, can, I just I can't imagine a sunfish getting anything above a three. <laughs> there are things that like, which is kind of
1: like why we set them up in these category styles is mm-hmm. that some animals might be particularly good at one thing and not so much at another, mm-hmm. or you might have an animal that's like very, very well adapted to what it's doing at the cost of it is extremely hideous and ugly. Right. Um, right. so like it gives you a little bit of room to appreciate the different like things that each animal is good at. Um, mm-hmm. and with the sunfish, we've been asked to do it there's a lot of back and forth about it because there is of course, a a viral Facebook post about the ocean sunfish Mm -hmm. um, that just dunks on them relentlessly. It's just like shitting all over the ocean Mm -hmm. sunfish. (laughs) And then there are rebuttals to that post by like Mm -hmm. Marine biologists who are like, you know, it, it's this way for a reason. Like this is why their bones are like this, or this is why their fins are oriented like this. So it's like, it could kind of go either way. Yeah, <laughs>
0: it's so for people who don't know what the ocean sunfish is, it's like it's a mess of a fish. It's a yeah, it's like a dinner plate <laughs> oriented upwards. That in it, like they're like up to two thousand pounds. They're like huge. as adults, they give birth to they they lay billions of eggs, millions of eggs at a time, and they just don't really have. They're funny because they're so ugly looking and they, it doesn't seem like they have a lot of purpose, but I'm sure they do.
1: <laughs> I would have to dig into it a little bit to see like exactly why they're so funky. Yeah. Cause their little fins are like very strange. They're, they have like their dorsal and like pectoral fins are like pointing directly up and directly down. Mm-hmm. It's a very mm-hmm. strange orientation.
0: Yeah. And they, and they, uh, the thing that just blows my mind is how absolutely massive they are. They're huge. Like it's not. Like it's, I can't even, it's like if an elephant was in the ocean, like it is just, (laughs) it's just massive. And that's what kills me about this fish because it's, I don't know what it does when it gets that big. It just kind of like lives life. Yeah. They're just vibing. They're just out there in the ocean, just living it up. That's like a goal, you know, just out there (laughs) living it up. All right. So sorry to interrupt. So, um, yeah. So you guys do these comparisons for your, uh, animals against each other. Is that kind of where the podcast like was originally supposed to be like what you guys planned on um yeah I mean
1: honestly it's it's remained largely unchanged since we started it um coming up on two years ago I I also I wouldn't necessarily say that we're like comparing them against each other earlier on like in the first few episodes or so we used to give like an overall score at the end of the animal Mm -hmm. um and then we pretty quickly stopped doing that just because it didn't feel very fair Mm -hmm. um like we would have animals that like uh what example would I give the shoe bill maybe that Mm -hmm. was like very good at what it was doing pretty clever in a in a lot of ways but it's a it's not a great looking bird so Mm -hmm. its score ended up getting dragged down because it's just not right not very cute and then I was like you know that doesn't feel fair (laughs) to -hmm. the animals we stopped doing that um And then basically just like sometimes when, uh, so an example would be the episode we just put up this week where we had the stargazer fish, which Mm. I feel is the ugliest creature in all of existence. I think this is (laughs) the most hideous looking creature in the world. And you don't like fish. I don't, I don't love fish. I I think many of them are beautiful.
0: Okay. Um, The stargazer. I haven't listened to this episode yet. Is that the one that has four, uh, pupils? I don't, I don't know if it has four pupils, okay, but this is the not... one that
1: lays under the sand with the face oh, pointing up.
0: Okay. I'm thinking of, um. oh man, I'm, I'm going to have to like remember what this is, <laughs> but there's this one fish that sits on the top of the water mm. and it has four pupils. So two look above the water and two look below. Oh, it's the weirdest thing
1: huh i would have to look around a little bit i know it's not the barrel i know it's not the barrel eye because the barrel eye is really Mm -hmm. really deep but this is the the stargazer is the one that has like its whole face is like at the top Mm -hmm. so that like it lays under the sand and you just have like the little face of the fish poking up through the sand Mm -hmm. um so i think that's the ugliest animal in the world and christian gave it a six out of ten uh for (laughs) for aesthetics which i was like wow that's generous and then it made me look like a jerk because i had the pink fairy armadillo and i, I gave it a, i gave it a 5 out of 10 for aesthetics it's pink
0: <laughs> Can you not that, that cute five.
1: basically the 5 points it got cuz it's pink. <laughs> like it's but, like that's uh, cute. I have a but- I
0: have a special place in my heart for armadillos cuz mm. I used to volunteer at the Cincinnati Zoo and I worked with the armadillos and they oh. were like the absolute best species to work They're with. They're so sweet. They're so <laughs> sweet. So Christian made me look like a
1: jackass cuz it made me like <laughs> then like because of the context of the episode then it looked like I was calling the pink fairy armadillo uglier than the stargazer, which wasn't Mm -hmm. my intention. It was just how they, we don't discuss these scores ahead of time. Right. So that was just how that panned out. Um, that's not, I don't think that it's just that we have different standards of Mm -hmm. beauty for different animals. So yeah, that's like, that is pretty much exactly what we set out to do. You know, the format of it has remained basically unchanged the whole time that we've been doing this podcast, which I think is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty cool.
0: (laughs) To, yeah, to, I think it's great. And I, you know, for anyone who's listening, like it is a family friendly podcast. It is. Um, while this one is not. So don't let your kids listen to my podcast, but definitely <laughs> have them listen to Ellen's. I should crank
1: up my bad word usage in this one. Like, yeah, I feel like you know, not, let like, your, let it I got go. a free pass. I need to like make the most of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I did. I was looking at your website earlier today and I like explicitly said that it was like a family friendly podcast. And I was like, shit. <laughs> I was like, Oh no, like I totally forgot. And then you were like, no, it's okay. I'll curse. And I was like, good. (laughs) But yeah, go ahead. (laughs) You know, this is like, you're not on the mom clock. You're not on the (laughs) (laughs) kid-friendly podcast clock. Say what you like. (laughs) Yeah. Finley's with his dad, so it'll be all right. Perfect. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so yeah, so you're just a zoo of us podcast. Um, I want to know what do you think is your favorite animal you've covered or Christian has, and what do you think you're most excited to cover next? Like, do you have like another animal you want to talk about?
1: Um, the one that I think was the most exciting for me to cover. The emu was very, very fun um, for me because I got to really dig into the evolutionary history of ratites, Mm -hmm. um, which is very interesting. It's wild. Yeah, Uh, I also really enjoyed talking about the veiled chameleon because I did get to really dig into how their skin changes colors. Mm -hmm. Um, So like I get to, I got to really like dig into like the layers of their skin and the pigments in each layer and how their cells like expand and all this really cool stuff. And then I got to, I got to like myth bust a little bit I got to talk about how in cartoons the chameleon is always like mimicking the color it's next Mm -hmm. to and like that's not how they work Mm -mm. um so that one was really fun for me those two stand out as like ones that I had a lot of fun learning about Mm -hmm. um and then ones that I'm excited about, uh, I have an episode coming up that hasn't dropped yet. Um, that's already been recorded. Ooh, this because.
0: is uh, an exclusive. Yeah,
1: this is a sneak <laughs> peek. Um, I don't know how long ahead. I don't know how far ahead you record these. So I don't know if it'll be up by the time this is out or not. Okay, this is coming out on this point Thursday. Okay, so yeah, it won't be out by then. I okay. have an episode about pronghorns.
0: Ooh, um, that's okay. coming up
1: uh soon I, mm-hmm. I don't know exactly when because i have a four month old baby so who knows when anything's <laughs> gonna happen but i have an episode on pronghorns that is recorded that is like wow chef's kiss it's it's <laughs> incredible i'm really excited for that one
0: to go up um, that'll be awesome oh yeah going back to reptiles a little bit because i want to yeah. get started talking about our stories in just a minute but of course um you did mention so you have a, a four month old and a six year old is it yeah yeah which is quite the spread yeah yeah I I should have just told you a recording and like let you take a nap like (laughs) um so do you think that if they said like mom I want to get a reptile would you do it
1: oh yeah definitely like absolutely no hesitation I think my husband would be really excited about it too I think Christian would be very game with that Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. I would, you know, want to wait until Finley, the younger one, is of the age where we could explain to him, like, leave this animal alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And it would, you know, I do think that we would approach it from the perspective of, like, this is a family pet, you know, like, not expecting the children to be the ones primarily responsible for the animal mm-hmm. um i think we would go at it go at it from the perspective of like this is definitely our undertaking because i would see that a lot of times you know the parent would be getting a, a very young child a reptile and expecting the very young child to be able to like do all of the you know maintenance mm-hmm. for a, a reptile which is simply not the case like there are things that they're not going to be able to do you know right. like taking care of their like. Heating and lighting, and mm-hmm. you know, making sure that you know they're getting the protein and the calcium and everything that they need is right. So, yes, I would get reptiles as a family pet, I would not get them with the expectation that they would be the kids' pets. Mm-hmm. Like, and what I do you get think them you'd get? me?
0: <laughs> what would you get?
1: I would probably get probably a bearded dragon, just mm-hmm. with the understanding that we've got kids in the house, you know, yeah. like, um understand that snakes can get pretty big mm-hmm. and I don't have any like worry about like snakes doing anything like with mm-hmm. the kids. I would worry more about the kids, like moving something and the snake escaping and then having yeah. a loose snake,
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: bearded dragons. I don't have so much of an anxiety about, <laughs> <laughs> right. So, and bearded dragons are just, they're, they're more chill. Mm-hmm. I think there may be a little bit more, a little bit less tempting for kids to like, mess with, Mm -hmm. um, just because they're for the most part, just kind of sitting there. (laughs) That's true. So so I would keep it basic. I would keep it very basic and get like a bearded dragon for the experience. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I would feel comfortable with my kids. Like you know, handling a snake, uh, maybe like if we were out somewhere, like maybe if we were at the zoo and they were having like a reptile, uh, encounter or something where Mm -hmm. they had like a snake out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, of course go like touch the snake, have the experience, interact with the animal and all like, like that. But like, as far as things that we're going to be keeping in our house that we're going (laughs) to be responsible for, let's keep it very easy and keep it Mm -hmm. to something that like, I know that my, my kid has ADHD. I have ADHD. Like, You know, I I don't want it to be the sort of thing that's going to be like if he reaches in and wants to like touch it or something, it's not going to be a whole thing like I don't have to freak out about it a bearded dragon. For where our family's
0: at, I think that would be the reptile for us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let me know when you're ready because we'll, (laughs) I love bringing people into having reptiles because you think you're just going to get one and then Mm -hmm. you just can't stop. It's like Pringles. Once you pop, just can't stop. (laughs) Oh, I forgot about
1: tortoises. (laughs) I would get a tortoise.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's interesting because God, I think tortoises are, I'm not a turtle person, but there's certain tortoises that I like absolutely love. (laughs) And tortoises can be great for kids because Mm -hmm. they're, a like a, a less um, i don't know why the word in my head is, is hostile they're not like <laughs> a there's not a lot of um worry of what a tortoise will do yeah. you know and, and they're definitely you get not, what a tortoise is about yeah and they're definitely not gonna sneak out of the cage like a snake <laughs> whale <will. laughs> yeah so a lot less worry there i
1: would get a tortoise and i feel like we have a we have a good um large backyard like mm-hmm. a large fenced in backyard. Mm-hmm. So I feel like we have enough space where we would be able to like let a tortoise roam a little bit. If right. like I feel like we would have space for a tortoise. Mm-hmm. And tortoises are just the most pleasant, mm-hmm. like sweet, adorable little things. And like mm-hmm. understand that yes, they do live for a billion, thousand, hundred <laughs> million years. Um yeah. and they do get pretty big. But I think either a bearded dragon or a tortoise would be mm-hmm.
0: our vibe. Very different <laughs> animals, but, you know, <laughs> you've got plenty of time to research. <laughs> so speaking of research, um, we both came prepared with a, uh, a herpetologist we wanted to discuss. So I would love if we can get started and you can yeah. tell me about the woman you, that you researched.
1: Yeah. So I got to learn about Enrica Calabresi. mm mm-hmm. Who I had never heard of and so I had either really glad that I did because she I will give a little bit of a warning this is a dark story mm-hmm. um, this is a little bit heavy so if you're not in that headspace maybe skip ahead to Dominique's story mm-hmm. <laughs> this one's a little heavy but so um the information that I got on her I got from this website called scuola a e memoria mm-hmm this is entirely in Italian. I'm sorry. I don't speak Italian. I'm going to pronounce some things wrong. And also the website was entirely in Italian and I had to like Google translate it into. Oh, English. wow. Well, thank you for your um, efforts. <laughs> I
0: appreciate that.
1: So I would okay. have simply
0: picked another herpetologist.
1: <laughs> I, so I got what I could like by like crossing it against like what was on other like English sites, um, mm-hmm. to make sure I wasn't like just understanding something incorrectly. But so a lot of the information that's out there is in Italian on her. Mm -hmm. Um, So Enrica Calabresi was born in on November 10th of 1891. Okay. In a city called Ferrara in Italy. Mm -hmm. So she was the youngest of four children in a Jewish family. Um, And at the time, academic achievement or like academic pursuit it it wasn't like expected or even really common for women Mm -hmm. like just it wasn't the sort of thing that like you really you know expected women to do but her family she came from a very academically accomplished family so Mm -hmm. her family all was very well educated and so they were supportive of her you know pursuing school um Mm -hmm. For what she wanted to do with her life so in 1914 she graduated from the university of florence uh with a degree in
0: natural sciences and okay I- can i pause you really fast yeah this is so interesting because my story is exactly four years after yours and it's a <gasps> woman who came from a well-educated family who um <laughs> went and studied natural sciences so i'm very interested because i know that ours have very different endings Ooh. so I'm, I'm some parallel to learn more. Yeah. So um,
1: I guess at the time, like you could be like a teacher at the university before you actually graduated, because mm-hmm. I think she had already been working at the university when she graduated. Mm-hmm. But so she got her degree in natural sciences um, and her thesis when she graduated was actually on hedgehogs. Um, oh. So the, the title was on the behavior of the chondriome in the pancreas and in the salivary glands of the hedgehog during winter hibernation and summer activity.
0: Huh? Yeah. So That's she started hedgehog. very specific.
1: <laughs> I know. Um, so uh, one thing to note is that while she was in Florence, um, people that, that knew her gave testimony that she got engaged to a young geologist uh, named Giovanni Battista de Gasperi. Mm -hmm. Um, which I think is a little funny because there's like, I think there's a little bit of like playful ribbing between like people in natural sciences and people in geology. You know, I think there's Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit of a tongue in cheek rivalry there (laughs) between (laughs) people who like animals and people who like rocks, Um, but they, they fell in love and got engaged. Um, he was an officer in the military, but sadly he was killed in 1916, which was during Mm -hmm. world war Mm one. So people who knew her said that this was just really devastating for her and it prompted her to make the decision to just devote the rest of her life exclusively to scientific research. Hmm. So, um, after this death of this, um, very, very close fiance, she was like, I'm done romantically. Hmm. Um, which she, she did, she, that, that panned out. She never like got married after that. Um. So she taught zoology and comparative anatomy of vertebrates at the university of Florence. Mm -hmm. Uh, she also held the position of secretary in the Italian entomological society from 1918 Mm to 1921. So this is where I want to talk a little bit about the actual things that like the, the work and the research that she did, um, so she studied materials that were brought back from trips to Ethiopia, Eritrea, and Somalia. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, they would send, you know, scientists out to go gather um, you know, animal materials and then bring them back to Florence. She studied them. Some of these were skulls of asp vipers. So she did a lot of work in viper like skull mm-hmm. um morphology. And then some of the work that she did actually led to the description of a lot of new species and taxa of amphibians and reptiles in Africa in this region. So there are some that are named after her, uh, including Calabresi's bullfrog. Hmm. The, the scientific name is here we go, <laughs> Pyxicephalus abianus, mm-hmm. and also Calabresi's blind snake, Afrotyphlops calabresi. Cool. Um, So both of those are found in Somalia, and they were named after the work that she did um, Mm -hmm. with these reptiles and amphibians. Um, she did a lot of other work in entomology too. She worked with, I think, different types of weevils, mm-hmm. different type of, types of beetles. Um, so did, did just a lot of work in that sort of region. I'm sorry, this is kind of where my expertise hits a wall. Like, <laughs> No, you're good. <laughs> I'm like, I understand it to be very uh, high level work and research that she did with, with reptiles and amphibians, specifically in Somalia. Okay. So during the, you, you know, now we're getting into the later 1920s and 1930s in Italy this is where the fascist regime regime of Benito Mussolini comes in Mm -hmm. Um, so there was a lot of this really immense socioeconomic pressure on women that really prioritized childbearing so Mm -hmm. childbearing was just kind of Depicted as like a woman's civic duty, right? It was seen as like her job, <laughs> like mm-hmm. her, it was her obligation to the state, you know, like a man's obligation was to perform, you know, in the armed services, and a woman's obligation was to have babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was not only pushed by propaganda, but it was even actually enforced with laws. So there were laws, there were quotas that like limited how many like women could be working. Um, women were completely just banned from working in higher education specifically. So women were like, just straight up, not allowed. Mm -hmm. Um, she did it anyway. (laughs) I guess she just kept on going. She was teaching at the university of Pisa until 1938. Mm -hmm. Um, so in 1938, Jewish people were legally banned from teaching, like just flat out, not allowed. Um, and, and they were, they were banned from a lot of other jobs as well. Um, but, you know, specifically impactful to her was that they were completely banned from teaching. So she also was just straight up banned from the university, like the university expelled her completely and, and, um, you know, told her to get lost essentially, even though she'd been there for so many years and done such great work. Um, So her family fled to Switzerland because her whole family was Jewish. So they fled to Switzerland to go to a safer place. She instead decided to return to Florence and she kept teaching at, she taught science at the Jewish school of Florence. So there was Mm -hmm. specifically one school specifically for Jewish people. So she taught there for five more years until 1943. Um, In January of 1944, she was arrested and she was taken to a convent that had been converted into a prison. It mm-hmm. was like a, a convent that they had just turned into this prison where they were holding people. So she knew that the next place that they, they were like processing her to be sent to the concentration camp at Auschwitz. Um, wow. Right. So that's you know, she, she knew that that was where she was heading. So she poisoned herself and died before she could be deported. So that was kind of her final act of like not being, uh, dictated where to go or what to Mm do with her life. So she just like, that was like her final act of like taking ownership of her own life that she, uh, killed herself before they could kill her. So,
0: wow. How old was she at that time?
1: I guess at that time she would have been, In her fifties, I guess she would have been 52, 53. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's hard to think about how much more work could have been done. Um, -hmm. if if she had because she had such she was in that intersection of being a woman and also being Jewish, right? So she was Mm -hmm. experiencing that very intersectional um oppression of misogyny and also racism. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that I think kind of goes to show you how much science has been robbed by these things cuz mm-hmm. we could have gotten so much further you know if if she hadn't been if her experience hadn't been cut short like that right so it's a very tragic story and it's very sad um i was kind of unsure if that was the right energy to be bringing to your podcast but you know it's it's, it's real. so important i th- it's, it's history
0: and i think it's you know there's a lot of like very sad stories um like that specifically with um like the Holocaust obviously and like the scientific discoveries that were lost because of anti-Semitism and racism towards people for literally no reason mm-hmm. um but then there is an added layer of the amount of women who have had their stories cut short for other reasons and um it's it is an unfortunately incredibly common story to hear of a woman researching, doing well, and then either like something happening where she can no longer do it. Like in this case, uh, obviously being sent to a concentration camp and passing away beforehand. Um, or we spoke a few episodes back, Kiana Fox, um, of the Canadian pediculture podcast. We talked about the story of Mary Anning, who is a, who, who was a woman who, um, was living in the 17 or 1800s in London and was finding all of these paleont- paleontological discoveries and fossils. And not being given any credit for what she was doing so she would find this fossil bring it to the paleontology society and they'd be like thank you so much hello i'm this man who found this fossil
1: and it's- yeah you made this i
0: made this yeah exactly i'm just going to say it louder than i did it and mm-hmm. that's incredibly common and like uh, unfortunately i i know you were like nervous about having a darker subject matter but i think it's it's important you know, it's, and we, it's we real. can't I sugarcoat mean,
1: it. Yeah. It's history. Um, And I think that there is also a lot to be said for the, just the sheer tenacity of her spirit, you know, like mm-hmm. you see so many instances throughout even this kind of very broad level, like overview of her life. You mm-hmm. can see so many instances of times where, you know, she was told, you know, because of your because of your sex or because of your race because of your ethnicity you can't you're not eligible to do these things and she said well fuck that yeah (laughs) like there were so many times when when her sort of life was trying to be dictated or determined for her Mm -hmm. and she just you know told him to kick rocks essentially and Mm -hmm. decided she was gonna uh, make her own path and she really just like followed that even through to the end where she just you know, her, she refused to let her like bodily autonomy be taken from her like that. And she was like, well, fine, you know, if it's my body, I'm going to do what I want with it, you know, Mm -hmm, and I'm mm -hmm. not going to let y'all have it. So you can see that just like pop up so often in her life. And I think that says a lot about her, just her, how admirable her sort of strength is, you know, Mm -hmm. that she wouldn't, would not let people have power over her like that. I think that's great.
0: Right. And I pre- I didn't know about that um the encouraging of, yeah. of women to be childbearing yeah yeah so I I
1: I read I did a little bit of reading about this and basically there were like quotas that really limited how many women could be like working and there were also like men were incentivized to be like the father of many many children so I think mm-hmm. like men that were the heads of households that had many many children were given financial incentives, but also like preference when hiring. So like hmm. they were given preferential treatment in society to like, which is interesting because it seemed like the focus was really more on just having the baby mm-hmm. than it was on actually like raising a child. Yeah. And, like making like, you know, having a good, healthy family. And it was just like have babies. <laughs> right. That's wow. Yeah. And, she, and I, that's yeah, from so what I can backwards. Yeah. I know. And from what I could find, it seemed like she never really, she never did have babies. Like mm-hmm. it was just, she was like, no, I'm just going to do science. You know, like I I have two children of my own and it, that's been a very rewarding experience for me, but I understand it's not for everybody, mm-hmm. right? Like it's not mm-hmm. the path that everybody wants or needs to go down. So, um, you know, she was definitely told to go down the, you know, be a mommy and have a thousand kids path mm-hmm. and, she just knew it wasn't for her and really, really, really stood till that to the end. So, yeah. I- and
0: I, that's like another thing that I think is a, a common thread across a lot of these stories, especially when you look at women in science or, or women in, in general in like professional careers, especially back in the eighteen nineteen hundreds, is that it was be a mother or be a professional. Mm-hmm. And there was very little overlap. Yeah. So I don't think that is an uncommon situation either.
1: Yeah. And they kind of tried to like, she decided, no, I'm not going to be a mother. I want to be a professional. And they said, well, actually that was your only option, you know, like being a professional wasn't even an option for her. So when she tried to choose to be a professional, they were like, oh no, no, you shan't be doing that. Um, (laughs) it was, it was really, it's the, the cards were stacked against her. Like from the beginning, I think that it's admirable that she did so much with the time that she had. And I just, I'm really glad that I got to learn the story. Cause I, I do think that like, if I hadn't been prompted to, you know, get the story ready to share with you, I, I don't know if I ever would have heard of this because I, there's, there's now like a docu-film about her life. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's in Italian And it was Mm -hmm. published, like it was released in, in like a film festival in Italy. Mm -hmm. I don't think I ever would have sought this story out, you know? Right. Um, But I, I think it's really, it's a great story of strength and it's like a story of defiance (laughs) and, you know, being confident in what, you know, your path is. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I love her. I think she's, I think she's really great. And I'm really glad that I got to learn this story.
0: Yeah, thank you for doing that. And can you remind me the species that she has named after her?
1: Yeah, there's two of them. One of them is Calibrace's bullfrog, which is mm-hmm. Pixycephalus albianus. Mm-hmm. And the other one is Calibrace blind snake, Afrotiflops Calibraci. I'm looking them up
0: because I think that's so interesting. Yeah, okay. it's really cool. I'm well,
1: I know that there's like a lot of conversation right now surrounding like eponymous names for animals, like giving, wait, well, animals, I don't know what
0: that word is
1: like, like naming animals after researchers or after scientists mm, or things yes. like that, you know, cause now, you know, it's the, the focus on like, okay, why are we naming these animals after people who had, uh, unsavory backgrounds,
0: right. I, I think that calibracy maybe is one that was well-deserved. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was going to, that was actually one of the things that I was going to ask you about um, because I know that I am fairly active. So for those who aren't on Twitter, there is an incredible community of science communicators on Twitter, and it is a very like progressive community of looking at how we have conducted science in the past and how we should move forward to make it a more accepting and, in positive space. And one of the big things is, um, saying that a lot of European researchers, like discovered species and trying to change it a little bit to say like, okay, they didn't discover it, but they named it, Mm -hmm. you know, because when you say someone discovered a species, There are people living in these areas beforehand who probably knew what these species were, but just because they weren't in a European scientific textbook doesn't mean they were undiscovered. Right. Yeah.
1: I think that one of these, one of the ones that was named after her was named posthumously by Mm -hmm. other people Mm -hmm. that named it after her. Mm -hmm. One of them, I don't know if she, it was her idea to name it that herself, but it was like named like as, as she was like describing them taxonomically. Right. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there is, I do agree (laughs) that, you know, a lot of times uh, white Europeans have a tendency to be like, oh. This thing that you have known about and had a name for for you know thousands of years, mm-hmm. well now I discovered it and I <laughs> decided that
0: it's going to be called after me now, right? You know, like and there's yeah, a difference a- between like taxonomically, like finding its family and finding the animals that it's related to, mm-hmm. as opposed like I think that. Scientific classification in that regard is important to do and maybe mm-hmm. hasn't been done in the same um for some of these species that are quote unquote discovered, but it's the renaming after yourself that's right. Unsavory. Iffy. Yeah, it unsavory is such a good word. I just said iffy.
1: No. Yeah, I feel
0: that. Okay. Well, I'm gonna talk about my yeah. person now.
1: I feel um, like I need a chaser now.
0: Yeah. Well, I did like <laughs> I went like kind of deep into it because I saw this title of a research paper, and I unfortunately like. S- sorry, this is just like the very. Uh, this is just poor of me, but I just didn't want to pay for the paper. <laughs> no, I feel you. I would rather find someone who. Listen, has that it. money doesn't go to the researcher it's- anyway. Exactly, it doesn't go to the researcher, and I just did not want to pay. I don't know. I think it was like one of the big publishing companies was like, give me $15 to rent this for 24 hours. And I was like, no, "No, thank you. No, but (laughs) the title of it, I had to do this story. The title of the paper that I didn't read is feminism, frogs, and fascism, the transnational activism of Brazil's Bertha Lutz. Hell yeah! Right. (laughs) I was like, this is so interesting. So I'm going to be talking today about Bertha Lutz. So, um, Bertha was born on August 2nd in 1894. So just right around the time of Enrica, um, but she was born in Sao Paulo, Brazil to a wealthy and well-educated family. So very similar, um, beginning as your story. So her father was named Adolfo and he was a Swiss physician and epidemiologist. So he was like heavily in science, um, which was a huge, inspiration for Bertha as she grew up and Bertha's mother was a her name was Amy and she was a British nurse. So I think it was really interesting that she came from a family in the 1890s where both parents were well educated and also working. Um to my knowledge Bertha doesn't have any other siblings. There was not a lot about her personal life. Um it just said the names of her parents and that was kind of it. So in 1914 she moved to Paris to go to the university of paris sarbonne and study natural sciences biology and zoology so she returned to brazil in 1918 after she graduated so after she graduated in 1918 she started studying uh, studying amphibians specifically poison dart frogs in brazil in the family hylidae So this is kind of where I'm going to stop talking about reptiles and amphibians for a second and talk about her activism, um, because it's really interesting. So she returned, she graduated in 1918 and returned to Brazil. And in 1918, she founded the league for international emancipation of women. And this was like the beginning of a lifelong, um, endeavor of promoting the welfare of women specifically in Brazil. And then eventually around the world. Um, And at the same time, she was actively doing research and studying, uh, these frogs and other amphibians. So I'm going to talk about that at the end because this just totally blew my mind. So in 1918, she founded the league for international, excuse me, she founded the league for international emancipation of women. And she represented Brazil on a female international council at the international labor organization. So this was kind of her first step into activism for women, um, there's not a ton about what this organization did, but four years later, she founded another organization called the Brazilian Federation for Women's Progress. And this specifically was advocating for Brazilians' women's rights um, for voting. And this was right after the United States had just um, passed the law for white women to be allowed to vote in 1921. So in 1922, Uh, Bertha served as a delegate to the Pan American Conference of Women in Baltimore, um, representing Brazil and advocating for the rights of women, specifically suffrage, um, and being able to vote in Brazil. So between 1922 and 1925, she continued to uh, become more involved and really work on her activism. And then in 1925, she became president of the Intra-American Union of Women. So the Inter-American Union of Women was the first governmental organization to specifically address civil and political needs of women in Brazil. So they were also, um, excuse me, not in Brazil, in the Americas. So this was specifically Pan-American, so more Central and South American so they also were the first organization to put forth a resolution calling for international suffrage for women not just suffrage in uh, brazil unfortunately this was not ratified but it is definitely like very cool to know that she was on the front lines of
1: oh yeah
0: of calling for that for women across the world um and then leader of the pack <laughs> yeah exactly um and then this organization which this is happening in 1925 she was researching and preparing the first ever treaty on violence against women across the world which is also very interesting and this was um not approved until 1994 yeah and um but they were fighting really hard for this so that they could because essentially, when these larger international um, treaties are not necessarily treaties—but these resolutions are made, um, you can bring back that decision to your home country and like fight for it there. So that was her goal: was to be working with these international organizations to fight for women across the world, and then be able to bring that back to Brazil and fight for that. This organization, so the Inter-American Union of Women still actively participates in UN discussions for advancing women in the Western hemisphere. So, um, from my research, it is still uh, an active organization, which is really cool. Mm, that's a
1: lasting impact,
0: huh? Right. Exactly. Um, so she decided to go back to school and get a law degree from the federal university of Rio de Janeiro, um, in 1933, where she continued to participate in conferences for gender equality. And she, uh, started refocusing and calling for the Inter-American Union of Women, which is also known as the Inter-American Commission of Women. So you can look up both um, to focus on gender equality in the workplace, which is just blows my mind that in 1933, she was focusing on this um, because it seems like just so recent but also Mm -hmm. so long ago
1: right like she was really ahead of the curve on that one she was
0: really ahead of her curve but also is like man 1933 we're still really fighting for that and then Mm -hmm. it's like oh wait we're still really fighting for that today so right (laughs) um so then in 1935 so this is two years after she graduated with her law degree she ran for the national congress of brazil she um did not win but she came in second place and um a year into office the gentleman who had beat her died and she took his position so oh Huh? Yeah. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of like okay. Well, we'll take it. We'll take it. (laughs) So, um, when she got into office, her very first proposal was the Statute of Women, which was to create a committee to analyze how Brazilian laws and legislation ensures the right that uh, ensures the rights that Brazilian women had and making sure that they weren't violated. So it was like going back and looking at laws that were already in place to ensure that things were. Um, equal for both sexes. Unfortunately, in 1937, the Getulio Vargas was reinstated as the dictator and her project um, could not move forward. So obviously, you know, a dictator came back into power and, and things changed a bit. Um, so no, even though that was going on, she continued to work for the Intra-American Commission of Women um, and was actually one of the people to sign a United Nations charter in 1945 in, in San Francisco to promote the equality of women um, in the workforce and then also just around the world. And then she ended up serving as vice president for the Intra-American Commission of Women from 1953 to 1959. So the story... <laughs> sorry for the timeline it like jumps around a little bit because she was doing so many things at once um so that was in she ended her vice presidency in 1959 but before she actually became vice president Um, So in 1948, she helped to fight to have sex included in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, um, which was accepted. So Article two reads, everyone is entitled to all the rights and freedoms set forth in this declaration without distinction of any kind, such as race, color, sex, language, political, religion or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth, or other status. So at the time that that article was, um, first brought forward, it didn't include, uh, sex as a way that you couldn't discriminate. So that was, um, definitely a win for her. So throughout her life, she continued to participate in, um, events that promoted women around the world, um, until she ultimately passed in 1976. Her last, um, event that she attended was in 1975. She attended a UN World Conference on Women in Mexico City. So right up until she did pass away, she was still very actively involved in um, promoting the rights of women around the world. So that is her more feminist and anti-fascism approach, as it says in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, but her um, at the same time that all this was going on, she was also actively researching and writing publications on, uh, amphibians in Brazil. So in 1919, only a year after she came back from college in the same year that she founded the league for international emancipation of women, she was hired by the national museum of Rio de Janeiro and became a naturalist in their botany department. So over the course of her life, she published many works. Um, three of which are the most notable so in 1943 she published observations on the life history of the brazilian frog in 1946 she published a notable frog chorus in brazil and then in 1952 she published new frogs from itatia mountain so her main focus was really these smaller frogs that were found local to Brazil and local to where she was living. Um, and then in 1958, she described what's now known as the Lutz Rapids frogs, um, which is Paratelmatobius Lutzai, which she named after her father, um, and to honor him in what he, his inspiration for her, um, getting into sciences. So that was the one species that she described herself, um, And, you know, I think that's kind of going back to our discussion earlier is like when we talk about this in the context of like she didn't discover it, but using the term described as a way to be like, okay, I kind of brought this to the forefront of like the scientific community as opposed Mm -hmm. to like claiming some ownership over it. Right. Um, so she also was honored in different species named after her that she, um, didn't specifically work with, but people wanted to give her credit for what she did. So she was honored in two different Brazilian lizards. So Liolemus Lutze, which is the Lutz's tree iguana in Philopasus Lutze, which is the Lutz's gecko. Um, and then in three different species of frogs. So Dedros did drop sophus bertha let <laughs> jeez oh my gosh um oh, they got her whole name in that one yeah i know they did a good <laughs> job um which is a frog in southeastern brazil also known as bertha's tree frog Ali, oh god allo ligon birthday which is a, another frog that unfortunately i couldn't find a lot of information on and then this is my favorite um megalosha let which is known um as like this huge frog found in itatia national park and i read this that their tadpoles can be up to five inches long which is just massive <laughs> too big right yeah <laughs> i was like nice that's a cool frog um, <laughs> so uh up until you know unfortunately after like 19 19- like the 1950s, there's really not a lot known about what she was up to. Um, until 1973, she published another major study on frog species unique to Brazil. Um, 1975 is when she attended the UN Congress or the UN world conference for women in Mexico city. And then in 1986, she passed away in Rio de Janeiro. So, um, I wish I had more information about what her life was like after her suffragette movement, but I thought this was such an incredible story because like she was doing such great things for science. And then at the same time was leading the cause for, you know, for the suffragettes in um, Brazil. And so you can't really find a lot about the science, but there's a lot there about her activism. So, Mm -hmm. um, I couldn't I couldn't pass up with the title Feminism Frogs and Fascism I was like that is the <sighs> book for me. <laughs> I know. That's like if if you're going to have an auto
1: like if you're going to have a biography written about you, that's what you want the title to be, right? <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And I really fast I want to give credit to the articles I read. So um I read an article on 100L's um website uh encyclopedia.com wikipedia had like most of the information um and then also the brooklyn museum so yeah i just thought that was such an interesting and unique story yeah i think
1: something that like stood out to me as you were telling like all the things that she did was i heard a lot of like things that she did that she tried to do that ultimately didn't necessarily succeed, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, like things that she would try to get passed, and then they would get shut down. Like they wouldn't get ratified or they didn't really, you know, come to fruition right. but she was completely like unfettered by that like mm-hmm. that did not seem to really <laughs> that did not seem to slow her down at all so I yeah. don't know. That's, that's very inspirational to me that idea of like she tried a lot of different things they didn't necessarily all pan out mm-hmm. but she stuck with it
0: mm-hmm. and I, I, I think that. it's it's really interesting too to listen to it in in the Context of Enrica Calabresi, like this was happening at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, these had, were
1: definitely like in the same time period, just on right. opposite sides of the world.
0: And I, um, I think it's important to note that like Bertha did come from a white wealthy family, um, and I think that helped her cause a lot. And she, because she was able to go get a more formal education at the Sorbonne, which is like. Sarbonne for people who don't know is like an incredible university. And she started there in 1914 and they didn't actually accept women until 1884. So she was like at the beginning of that too. I want to definitely just like make it known that her political and financial uh, stance, like that she was born into definitely helped Mm -hmm. her kind of go to the forefront of this cause. Yeah. And I think that was
1: kind of the case with, with Enrique, too that like she she came from a position of like coming from a an accomplished family Mm -hmm. that had a very high social standing in the city that she was from right um and so probably had a little bit of a boost you Mm -hmm. know like getting I, I I don't know what the process was like in the early 1900s you know to get into college go to college like that whole experience I don't know what all that looked like but it's pretty tough these days. Yeah. Um, especially if, you know, you don't come from a wealthy family. Mm-hmm. So yeah, both cases of like people who I think got a little bit of a, of a nudge like mm-hmm. at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that also like goes to show how, how far people can go when they're supported, you know, mm-hmm. like how, how much of an impact that makes that you can go on and do all of these like incredible things with your life with, with that sort of like boost at the beginning, like
0: with, with that access to the education that you are passionate about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too. Um, there's like no me- mention of Bertha ever being married or ever mm-hmm. having any kids or anything. And, and I think that, um, it was like refreshing to read her story and have not a single article mention it because mm-hmm. it seems like it wasn't as pressured for her like as opposed to Enrica where I was like very important in that society mm-hmm. it seems like Bertha was able to focus on other things um whether she wanted that like family aspect wasn't mentioned either mm-hmm. but for that not to have been like such a driving factor was cool
1: yeah um yeah I think that with with Enrica you know like there was just this pressure on you know returning to this traditional role of what the expectation of like what a proper woman should be doing is Mm -hmm. um and you're and we're still seeing that you know like we're, we're still seeing the expectation of like when women are pursuing any sort of academic career the expectation of like oh are you trying to find a man you know, like getting your MRS degree. (laughs) Yeah. Like, are you just trying to find a wealthy husband? Like, are you taking Mm -hmm. all these classes so that you can find somebody who's going to, who you're going to marry and, and they're going to take care of you for the rest of your life. Um, so, you know, we still see that today. And so I think both of these are examples of women who just totally were like, actually, I don't think I'm going to do that. Yeah, Um, (laughs) And, and so I, I know that it's like in the grand scheme of things, it's very recent, but also thinking about like, that was a pretty long time ago. That was probably pretty socially progressive for Mm -hmm. them, for that time, for them to be so independent and not, uh, you know, not feeling reliant on the traditional role of a woman in the society at that time, you know, that they were able to kind of buck that expectation be like, I don't
0: think I'm actually going to be doing that. I think I'm going to actually do
1: my own thing.
0: And I I think it's like one thing, too, that I I didn't mention, but like very much like I'm going to do my own thing is that like Bertha went to she graduated college and started working in 1918, but she didn't get the right to vote till 1932. Mm, Oof. Like, that's crazy. Like, not only was she in a male dominated career and she was like fully educated and like, was very well known in her community, but like she like 1932 to be like when women could vote is just like mind boggling. Cause we talk about like, oh, that was so long ago. That was not very long ago. I know. And
1: you know, t- the fact that like, she kept coming up with all of these like efforts to in- advance the rights that women didn't have yet. And then they got shot down. Mm-hmm. Like for me, that shows me that like these socially progressive ideas, Aren't necessarily new, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like just because they didn't get legally acknowledged until, you know, much, much later doesn't mean that people didn't, that those efforts weren't being made until then. They just got shot down, you Mm -hmm. know, like people Mm -hmm. had all of these, like there were all of these progressive movements and people that were trying to get these things pushed through, they just, you know, weren't legally uh like validated Mm -hmm. until decades later but it it makes me feel like um you know a lot of times you don't you don't necessarily hear about the failed attempts at things like you don't you don't hear about like oh yeah women were actually fighting for the right to vote for you know ages before Mm -hmm. suffrage actually was legally like a thing (laughs) when you hear about it in history class, which is maybe because I'm from Florida and we're notorious for a very bad public education system. (laughs) But right. Like when you hear about like socially progressive movements, you hear about them in the terms of when they actually came to like Uh legal uh, fruition, but you don't hear about like, Oh, people actually wanted these things for decades Mm -hmm. beforehand. Like this Mm -hmm. wasn't necessarily a brand new thing when it came out. It's just that it had been fought back for so long.
0: Right. And man, like for like, I'm looking at the timeline again, the right to vote was in 1932. She was on Congress in 1935. Like, like, like they knew like things like quite a turnaround. (laughs) That's quite the turnaround. And I think that's like, she was one of the first women on their Congress. And I think it, it would be interesting to see how it would have, um, continued to have been such a positive progression had the dictator not come back into power in 1937 because mm-hmm. you know that must have been like such a blow to work so hard to get the right to vote and then to have like essentially the rights of everyone to vote to kind of be stripped away in that regard
1: mm-hmm. yeah i i think we have two two stories of uh women who will not be told what to do <laughs> <laughs> i love this i i feel like we have two very strong heroines mm-hmm Excellent. Both excellent stories. And yeah. I don't mean to like I don't obviously like I'm married and I have kids, right? Mm-hmm. I don't mean to say that like no woman should ever get married or have children. Like it's But it should be your
0: choice.
1: Yes. It needs to be like the thing that you want, that you're not just doing because you've been told to do it or because you think that's what you're supposed to do. Like mm-hmm. it can be very fulfilling and it can be, you know, it 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 can be an enriching experience, but like it's not what everybody wants to do, you know, and, and some people are like, just thrive when, when they have the, the independence and the, I guess the, you know, both of these women, uh, went so far with their studies and, and with, uh, scientific and academic accomplishments on their own, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I just think that that is like a, something to keep in mind is that like, a lot of times women are expected to need the support of like a husband, uh, and, you know, a whole, you know, they like need to have like their whole family that they've got set up to, in order to like, and, and without that, that they won't be able to succeed in academic, uh, careers. So I think these are both great examples of just women who
0: didn't, they, they made their own way on their own. And I think that's, I think that's great. And I, um, I appreciate you taking the time to research it because I was like, Cause you put out a a message on, on Twitter and you're like, Mm -hmm. Hey, does anyone want me on their podcast? And I was like, hell yeah, I do. (laughs) But then I was like, Oh, you don't keep reptiles. Like um, (laughs) I'll make you research. And (laughs) no, I love researching, you know, like we do a lot of research for
1: our show. So like, Mm -hmm. I'm no stranger to researching for a podcast. Um, but I'm, I'm not a history buff. Mm -hmm. Um, like I'm really not the type of person to, to dig into, um, like biographies or anything like that. So this was like a different experience for me, but I found myself getting really lost in it. Like I was like Christian looked over at one point yesterday and I had like three different tabs open that were all like, um, research gate, uh, like papers on like fascism in Italy and (laughs) and like, uh, misogyny and propaganda and so like i was getting like way deep down the rabbit hole which i don't mm-hmm. normally do for for history so this was a, a different experience for me but but definitely um i'm i'm excited by like the differentness the differentness is like ooh, it's something new
0: yeah well i i appreciated it it was like it was very fun um and i think we are reaching like the hour and a half moment so i'm gonna <laughs> wrap up a li- i know can you believe it oh. um <laughs> i'm gonna uh wrap up a little bit um So I want to thank you first of all, for coming on the show, for doing the research. Um, and then also I just think like, thanks so much for what you and Christian are doing with like bringing fun animals to the forefront of people who maybe wouldn't otherwise be like thinking or talking about these animals. Um, so if people would like to get in touch with you or learn more about their podcast, how can they reach you?
1: yeah we're we're on social media so we're on facebook twitter instagram um if you look up just the zoo of us um me personally because i think maybe some people listening to this um if if you're not interested in just the zoo of us but you're interested in me (laughs) (laughs) i'm on i'm on twitter too also um my username my handle is at elks needle e-l-k-s-n-e-e-d-l-e um but we're on twitter we're very active on twitter our website mm-hmm. is very active, active. <laughs> very active unhealthy active on twitter <laughs> um our website is just azuva.com that has a link to like all the places where you can hear our podcast it's on all like the big podcatchers you know like spotify itunes um all the big ones. (laughs) I'm sure if, if you use a podcatcher that you do not see us on, please let me know. And I will rectify that immediately. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Um, I have an email address too. Also it's Ellen at just the zoo of us.com. Like if you, if I said something horribly offensive and uh, wrong, and you want to chew me out, I suppose you could send me an email there. Yeah, I'd be careful. <laughs> I'd be careful. That you talked
0: about how cats are bad in the wild. And
1: <laughs> okay, if you have something to say about that, please direct your attention to Christian Weatherford. Um, he's on Twitter also, but he doesn't check it. So please at him about it <laughs> if you have complaints about that perfect um and let's actually send any complaints to president joseph biden yeah
0: (laughs) just at potus (laughs) um and once again thank you so much for being on the pod um it was an absolute pleasure to chat with you um i was excited that we could finally quote unquote meet um also i hope my audio is coming okay right because All of a sudden I'm so lagging on my video. Not sure if you can see that. Yeah. Your video is lagging, but the audio sounds fine. Great. Um, So for anyone listening still after this kind of shit show of an ending for me, sorry, (laughs) um, you can always get in contact me at DeFalco Reptiles on Facebook and Instagram. Um, You can also contact the podcast at Modern Medusa Podcast on Instagram. And I want to give a huge shout out and thank you again to Joe with Port City Pet. Who you can find on Facebook and Instagram as well. So, Ellen, once again, thanks for spending your Saturday morning with me. It was such a pleasure, and um, I look forward to listening to this upcoming episode with the pronghorn. <laughs> <laughs> that's a that's a big uh,
1: that's a big um. It's not a secret, obviously, because I just said it on your podcast. Exclusive. That's though. a yeah.
0: That's an exclusive sneak peek. Perfect. Well, thank you so <laughs> much, and, and thanks of everyone course. for listening.
1: Thank you.